The last in this week's amazing series of events under David Ager, our visiting professor of Humanitas, professor of drama at Oxford. Um, Humanitas is a series of visiting professorships at Oxford and Cambridge, intended to bring together leading practitioners and scholars, as we have seated before you here, um, in the arts, humanities, and social sciences. And it's created by Lord Weidenfeld. The program is managed and funded by the Weidenfeld Hoffman Trust and coordinated in Oxford by the Oxford Centre for Research and the Humanities, um, otherwise known as TORCH, um, which is housed just next door to us here. And we're enormously grateful to Andre Hoffman, who is the generous donor that is supporting this chair in drama. Besides educating, entertaining, challenging, provoking and delighting us over the last week, um, Dave Leger has been challenging, provoking, delighting, entertaining and educating us with a whole series of plays on stage for the last 45 years or more. Um, and a huge range of venues and dramas across the National Theatre, the Royal Court, out of Joint, Joint Stock, the RSC, you name it, he's worked with them. Um, and a whole host of extraordinary plays, right from the kind of early agitprop from favourites like Maydays and Teen Dreams, all the way through Nicholas Nickleby, Spear, um, Pentecost, and that absolute gem, if you have not read it or seen it, do so. It's a truly beautiful play on the early English translations of the Bible, written on heart, which is just brilliant. Um, Michael Billington is still, to me, the voice of drama criticism. Having discovered a very battered old copy of Ken Tynan in the school library and read all of that, I then realized there was no more Ken Tynan to read, so I started on Michael Billington, and I've never stopped. Um, Michael has worked as the voice of theatre in The Guardian for the last 40-something years. Um, and his commitment to theatre, not just as entertainment and as an artistic medium, but also as a vital part of the intellectual and political debates across the country, is deep-seated and inspirational. Um, and because clearly doing all that isn't quite enough, he's also written a couple of amazing books on theatre, um, The Life and Works of Harold Pinter and The State of the Nation. Dr. Liz Tomlin is a senior lecturer in drama and theatre arts at the University of Birmingham. She's an expert on contemporary performance and her publications include Action <coughs> Apparitions, Discourses on the Real in Performance Practice and Theory, 1990 to 2010, and British Theatre Companies, 1995 to 2014. She was also <coughs> a member and associate director of the Open Performance Centre in Sheffield where she co-founded the theatre company Point Blank, and has written and directed a number of nationally touring productions. Chris Good has rightly been described as one of the most exciting talents working in Britain today. He is a writer, director, performer, and sound designer, whose work includes two Fringe First Award-winning shows, Neutrino and Kiss of Life, and a wealth of extraordinary plays, including Monkey Bars, Nine, Godhead, and the wondrous and inspiring stand that was performed here in Oxford last year. Rachel Delahaye is an extraordinary new talent in theatre writing. She is the winner of the Ever Evening Standards Most Promising Playwright Award and her heartbreaking, funny, immediate and commanding plays, 
the West Bridge, circles and routes bring a unique and astonishing new voice to theatre. It's an enormous honour to have this wealth of talent here today to um, discuss, fight it out, agree with each other <laughs> over the <laughs> Well, thank you very much, and this gives me an opportunity to say how much I've enjoyed and valued this week, and to thank all the benefactors, but perhaps particularly Sos, you and, and, and Sarah, for making it both making it happen, but also making it, making it very enjoyable. Um, I thought it might be worth just doing a bit of story so far of the week. Um, uh, so anybody who, who, who has been to all of the other sessions, which would be glutton, gluttony for punishment, um, uh, uh, you, you might think actually that, that it makes even less sense in the, in the contracted version, but I, I just wanted to run through what had happened so far. Um, and, and, and on Monday I gave what academics now call a provocation, which I think was probably suitable in this case. Um, uh, which was kind of autobiographical. I talked about coming into the theatre in the 70s, working with small radical theatre companies, and the fact that at that time we felt very adjacent, very near to a group of um, performance art companies, which had come out of a different visual, visual arts tradition. Uh, that those two trends kind of split in the 70s, not in any sense ideologically, but um, performance art went off its own circuits, its own devotees, and a number of us, uh, not just writers, but, but actors and directors also attempted to break into the mainstream theatre. And writers in particular realised that that theatre was still overwhelmingly dominated by revivals of, of plays by the dead. And, you know, sort of 85 plus of the repertoire. And we spent a lot of the 70s and early 80s when we weren't actually writing things, um, struggling to get our plays particularly onto large <coughs> stages. And we began to see some success in that. But during the 80s, we also noticed uh, that the very kind of small-scale radical experimental company that we'd started out with were now increasingly creating work without writers. And, um, and that caused, I think, for those of us who you know, wanted the playwrightly pool to be replenished and realised that's where it would be replenished from, uh, that was a kind of, that was a, a concern. Further, those of us who attended uh, conferences and, and know academics and, and read their books were increasingly aware in the 90s and, uh, and the noughts of a theoretical turn in um, drama and performance studies, uh, which I certainly saw as ideologising uh, a hostility to theatre text, to the traditional model of a play being written and then rehearsed and presented. Um, and there were kind of three aspects for me for that. One was the use of post-structuralist analysis to challenge tradi the traditional writerly toolkit of structure, dialogue, characterization. Uh, secondly, an implication that the single writer was uh, incapable of writing in another way, even if she wanted to. And thirdly, that uh, uh, the conventional model of, of, of play production was um, undemocratic, uh, unethical, and politically reactionary. 
and that these, these views in this turn had led to the syllabuses of many departments focusing on quite a narrow range of performance companies. Uh, and where texts were studied, it was those texts which were conducive to being analysed in terms of contemporary literary theory. Uh, and for us in the business, it seemed that a new fault line had been drawn, that, that we saw ourselves as being part of uh, a, a, a new work, work culture which was uh, up against a theatre dominated by revivals, and now suddenly it seemed that we were being lumped together with the rest of test-based work as something that was <coughs> tired and, 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 and dusty up against uh, a new and invigorating uh, uh, um, theatre, new work based on, based on performance um, and, and devising. And I wasn't alone in these concerns. A lot of playwrights and increasingly academics were uh, concerned, uh, concerned about that too and the long-term effect on it. There were, however, two big howevers. One was the news, which is in fact new news, um, that new writing in the British theatre is doing very well. In 2013, uh, in the building-based sector, including the, uh, which includes the work of many small-scale touring companies that have their work done in, in buildings, 69% uh, of, of, of what used to be called straight theatre, that's everything but not musicals, pantos and opera, uh, was new work. Um, a, cons a substantial portion of that was devised, around 14%. Uh, and, but authored new plays were still kind of in a majority at 55% of productions and 56% of performances. Uh, and the BBC, coincidentally, has just produced um, some work on uh, going from 2009 to 2014, uh, which says that in that period there's been a 35% increase in new work. So it suggests that 30, 2013 wasn't a... Uh, you know, what, what, what wasn't a freak, and that that, that is continuing. Uh, so uh, that there is no danger currently of devising taking over the theatre. There is no danger of a return to a world of, 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 of revivals. And the fact that my personal sense of beleaguerment had been, been somewhat, had been temporarily redressed led me on to the kind of other, however, which was about me, uh, and having you know, thought about and, and in my head tried to challenge certain academic presumptions, uh, I realised I hadn't looked at my presumptions, uh, notably uh, an idea that there was something about the previously written script uh, by the individual writer, that that was, had been the way of things for so long because that made the best work. Was that so? Uh, if so, how was it so? What did playwrights, including myself, do when they wrote? Could those procedures perfectly well be done collectively? And when I was asked to curate this, this week, uh, I thought I would uh, try and answer that question. And as a kind of prologue, I got together a group of writers at the Royal Court in, in November to discuss their processes. And uh, on Wednesday this week, I did a kind of public version of that event with April De Angelis, who'd been at the Royal Court, and David Gregg, uh, who hadn't. Uh, David had the advantage that he's also worked in collaborative theatre models with his company, Suspect, Suspect Culture. And last evening, I talked with Howard Brenton and Brian Lavery, both of whom have worked with other writers, but also in non-traditional ways with companies. Um, 
And these conversations were fascinating, and we all wondered why we hadn't had them before. Uh, and I think I found uh, the conclusions I drew from, from, from all of those sessions were uh, being impressed by how writers, although interested in form, started from content, uh, which might be subject matter, but it might auto, also be autobiography. Um, that building up a, a, and writing a play often took a great deal of time, and David Gregg was talking about a project that had taken 10 years for him to work out and bring to fruition. Um, that there were often full starts, there was a great deal of abandoned work. There was considerable influence of pre-existing texts. Again, David Gregg's San Diego is very consciously based on Thornton Wilder's Our Town, and David Hare and Howard Brenton's Pravda is, is based on, on Faust. And the importance writers gave to recognising um, that things either worked or they didn't. In other words, there was a kind of very clear instinct. Uh, and and you, know, you try to drill down that and say, well, what are the criteria you apply? And it's very difficult to do so. And that seems, again, something that was very personal to the writers themselves. Um, talking about co-writing um, uh, 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 and the fact that certainly working with one other writer is kind of mimicking how sitcoms are put together. Uh, uh, Howard Brenton was, was very firm that this was very good for comedy. Uh, and also I said to him, you know, what did working collaboratively do that change you as a writer when you went back to your own work? And he said, yes, it's made me more of a showman, which I thought was an interesting comment. Um, and finally, the point um, that writers who are adapting existing texts um, are, are, are as, as, as Brian Lavery put it, already working collaboratively, uh, albeit with the dead. Um, this evening uh, brings another playwright, Rachel, together with a critic, a theatre maker who doesn't work in the conventional model, um, and an academic who uh, I'm going to allege, but she may challenge, I think has slightly shifted her ground. Um, I'm going to ask, um, uh, in a spirit of pluralism and openness to new ideas, uh, and I'm going to ask each of them a question, and then we'll talk among ourselves for a bit, and then, and then, and then open it out. Uh, and my first question is, 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 is for Michael, uh, who has, I'm sure, more experience of being in theatres than anybody else on this panel. Um, perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, but certainly a, a, a huge experience of the current theatre scene. And whether you feel that the move towards new collaborative forms of playwriting, which has been much discussed and is clearly the case and is spreading, uh, you know, spreading from, from small-scale theatre into large-scale theatre, whether you feel that it you know, has become the most exciting thing that's happening, uh, and, but also what effect it's having on the theatre ecology as a whole. Big questions. <clears throat> um, before I answer, can I just throw a spanner into the works by picking up on your statistics about the dominance now, the predominance of new writing, if yeah. I read that correctly. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, all, I'm a champion of new writing. I have been, obviously, all my life. But what worries me is a, an imbalance that we may be heading towards of new writing predominating over revivals of classics. The worst thing that could happen to the British theatre, I think, for writers and theatre makers, <coughs> would be if we were cut off from our past. And when I look around the theatre generally, I'm worried more at the moment 
about the decline of the classic tradition than I right. am about <coughs> changes and shifts in patterns of new writing. And I'm quite serious about this because, I mean, just tiny anecdotal example. I mean, I was lucky enough, I grew up in a city you know well, Birmingham, or out near Birmingham, anyway, Leamington Spa. I was able to go to Birmingham Rep as a teenager and see the spectrum of world drama, basically, you know, in the yeah. Barry Jackson era, from the Greeks up to the present day. That would be impossible for any one of my age living in the Midlands today. You would not have that range of world drama available. And I look around regional theatre programmes, I look around the decline of touring theatre, and it seems to me the classic repertory is the thing that is endangered at the moment, while new writing in all its different manifestations is doing extremely well. So I think at some point that is another topic. It's yeah. not quite the one we're, you've asked me to discuss, but <laughs> I would like to throw it into the melting pot. Um, in answer your, direct answer to your question, do I feel the move towards collaborative work is the dominant, almost exciting trend? No. Um, not in my experience, anyway. I feel the move towards whatever term we're going to use, collaborative, should we settle on that? Collaborative work is a fascinating um, alternative, but it is not, to me, the main activity. The motor of British theatre still seems to me the solo playwright, the individual playwright. Maybe my experience is partial and limited. I mean, the past week, what have I seen? I've seen four plays. One was Tom Stoppard's Arcadia from the relatively recent past. Uh, one was Pirandello's Six Characters, further back in the 20th century. A, an Edwardian play by a forgotten writer, St. John Hankin. And last night I went to see a newish play um, by Alice Birch. You know, and that's not an untypical week, actually, in the mix. But my point is, all four events were writer-driven. And that, either through my choice or not, is, is the theatre that I'm familiar with. I'd just like to make <clears throat> a few other points. One is we talk about collaborative theatre as if it's very recent. You know, we all know, that it actually goes back quite a way, doesn't it? And I would have thought the first, the first great example I saw of collaborative theatre was Joan Littlewood's Oh, What a Lovely War, which predates you know, anyone on the panel, I suspect, 1963, wasn't it, at Stratford East. And that's a classic example to me of how theatre can be created, because it's, it's well known. Joan Littlewood jettisoned the written script that she had been given. She worked with the actors, and I've talked to the individual actors. They came in with ideas, improvisations were done around specific topics, and out of that a script emerged. But it was a genuinely collective experience. And if you, try, if you go into a bookshop and ask for, oh, what a lovely war, you'll find it's under T for Theatre Workshop, genuine collaborative theatre. Um, and I think that move has been going on in all my theatre-going lifetime. As you know better than I do, in the late 60s, when revolutionary politics led people to question the whole um, hierarchical structure of society, that was when collaborative theatre, it seems to me, began to take off. And today we're living with this, I would say, very healthy diversity of theatre, where there's all kinds of uh, shapes and sizes of theatre companies. Physical theatre company thrives with groups like Frantic Assembly, um, you have new forms of immersive theatre with companies like Punch Drunk and Shunt. You have very exciting companies like 1927, which I'm sure some of you have seen, which blend text with animation. Um, I mean, all these things seem to be a sign of a diverse and healthy culture. Um, but I come back to my point that the majority of theatre is writer-driven. Um, if you look at what happens at the main new writing stages in London, if you look at what happens in the big regional centres, Sheffield, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, Chichester, the big buildings, 
what you see is a theatre that is dependent on writers, uh, living and dead. Um, so what I'm saying is, I still think the, the solo author is, is the motor that drives theatre, but I welcome any um, alternatives to that, but they are not to be the main activity. I'd just like to say this, though. I think the attempt to dethrone the solo writer, and I don't know whether that I'm sure that's not your intention, but this is the, sort of the idea behind David's question. The, attempt, the attempt to dethrone the solo writer seems to be based on several fallacies, and one of which is that by making the working process more democratic, you make the end product more revolutionary. And I don't believe this to be true from what I've seen. Um, and that you're changing society by somehow changing the means of production and the means of creation. And I have seen nothing that supports the evidence for that. And I would come back to this point. The paradox is that it is solo authored work that seems to be more likely to shift attitudes and to rearrange consciousness. And there's evidence, I would cite the significant political plays that have come from writers, uh, endless writers, Carol Churchill, Trevor Griffiths, David Hare, Had Brenton, David Edgar himself, obviously. And look at the new generation today. Laura Wade with Posh, Lucy Preble with Enron, Lucy Kirkwood with Chimerica, Roy Williams, Jack Thorne, Rachel herself, all these writers, all writers seems to be addressing social political issues and doing it through the intensity of their solo vision rather than through a collective experience. It is the solo writers, it seems to me, who are challenging society and its framework. Um, to be even more specific, take, I mean, I stand open to correction on this, but take the issue that I think is the dominant issue of that society and is becoming a dominant issue in the theatre, climate change. Um, you may tell me I'm wrong on this, but I have not seen many devised or collaborative pieces on this subject. I've only seen one, actually, which was a multi-authored show which the National Theatre did called Greenland, which was... How do we describe it? You, you, <laughs> yeah. Say it. So, well, it's a bit of a catastrophe, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you weren't part of it. No, no. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, I forget how many authors there were. Um, there was no coherent idea behind the show, and it just, it just did nothing for the cause. But on the other hand, Steve Waters wrote two quite extraordinarily good plays at the Bush about the um, impact of climate change on personal relationships. The Royal Course, I'm sure you know, has staged two, as it were, solo lectures on this subject, one of which, 10 billion by a Cambridge academic, was one of the most, uh, one of the most extraordinary events I've ever been to, because it, you came out, having been told, having been given a rare statistics, having been told, basically, we are fucked. That was his message. You came out thinking, what on earth can one do? And his point was, individually, we can do nothing to affect this. The only likely change can come from uh, governments, uh, and that not, seems not to be happening. So what I'm saying in a rather lengthy way is that working practices are changing, theatre is very diverse, there are all kinds of different manifestations of theatre, and I think it's wonderful that actors are now much more engaged in research than they were 40, 50 years ago, that you, know, you don't simply deliver a script, I assume this is true to actors do, the actors are then expected to 
contribute in your own work as yeah, the, the, the rehearsal process yeah. is much more when you didn't interactive than the actors were yeah. all given tasks to my yeah, right, you know, absolutely and yeah. came back and that seems to be wonderful and right and proper um, but I just come back to the the point that for me theatre starts it doesn't end with this but it starts with the vision and the power of the single author um, and that collaborative theatre is, a, is an alternative and it's an interesting and it's a fascinating one, but it doesn't actually change the society or the theatre. And I don't think we should confuse the democratisation of the process with the vitality of the end product. And just one final thought to provoke and annoy everyone. It sometimes strikes me with pieces I have seen that have been devised. They have had more fun than we do. Um, <laughs> It's, it's unfair to quote this because obviously there are good and bad examples in every single sector. But I, I had the misfortune the other day to go and see a play at the Bush Theatre in London called Islands. And it was attributed to an author, Caroline Horton. Um, but she made it very clear in her introduction to printed text that it had, the text had arisen from endless improvisations on the subject of tax havens. Well, I don't know what they got up to. They may have a, they had perhaps a tremendous time in those improvisations, but we, the audience, had, I think, a uniquely miserable time. It was one of those evenings uh, that took an important and interesting subject but turned it into uh, rehearsal room games and nothing more than that. So this worries me that the excitement of the process may displace the uh, quality of the final product. And I toss that into your <laughs> lap for you to attack. <laughs> um, I, I think the point about revivals is an interesting one because it does remind us that I mean it's not a near zero sum game, but if you do more of one sort of theatre, then you're uh, probably going to do less of another. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, revi I mean revivals are doing very well, but there's less of them. Um, Chris, there's a there's an argument that this is a non-issue. Uh, that, 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 that you've all wasted your time coming to, 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 to Oxford, uh, that a hundred flowers are, are, are very effectively blooming, um, that there's been an enriching expansion of, of, of ways of, of, of making theatre. Um, when, I, when I put the, and that, that's an excellent thing, uh, when I put the programme of this week online, you, you immediately tweeted, um, uh, I think more or less to that effect, um, but now you've got more than 142 characters. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, this is your chance to have a go at the premise, should you wish to do so. Okay, all right. Um, gosh, I've now got so many notes in front of me, I think I might have to abandon text altogether. Um, <laughs> try, and, try and make this up as I go along. Um, I don't think it's been a waste of our time our coming here. I already don't think that, because I think some, some really interesting things have been said. But also, I think that the premise on which this, uh, this week of conversations has been based is extremely interesting and, um, and very potent. Um, and the fact that I think, I mean, it seems like none of us actually believe the, um, uh, the, the provocation that we began with, that there's a, um, uh, an anti-writer trend uh, at large in British theatre, or that if we do believe it, we kind of feel also that the battle is, is, is being fairly comfortably won. Um, that's certainly what the statistics uh, seem to bear out. I, um, I had a little look through, I made myself a list on the train here of, um, uh, of 30 shows that are currently playing in London. It was the, the 10 uh, 
Critics' Choice at time. It was all from Time Out. Ten Critics' Choice, ten new reviews, and the ten um, ten to look out for in February. So thirty shows that they're highlighting as being important and interesting, and uh, of those, uh, twenty-seven, uh, I would say, were. Um, uh, there was a, a, a writer identified and, and I would say a, a fairly orthodox uh, process there. So I, my, my guess is that, the, um, that that sort of reflects the, the statistics uh, that you've been mentioning. Um, I, I feel like I'm here with, I don't, know whether to, I don't know whether to begin with, I think I have a very provocative way of answering this question and a, and a friendlier way of answering this question. <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll start friendly and I'll edge towards the... The, the mean thing to say and see if I can get away with it once I've established that I'm, I'm not as rabid as all that. Um, my, um, I was really interested to hear you talk about your routine, David, because it's very similar to mine in that I, um, uh, in a way, in that I started out as a, um, what I think you would recognise as a playwright. I wrote plays on my own and I gave them to directors and the directors put them on. But at the same time, I was being um, influenced more by um, what was this? Is, so this is the, the mid '90s. My first play was on at the Finborough in '96, um, and I, w I, at that time, I was being more influenced by what was going on in dance uh, and in uh, what, by that point, we were calling live art, uh, and uh, and by what was happening in visual art, which was very strong at that time. And what that meant for my work was that writing a script on my own was becoming an almost impossible task uh, because. Uh, I was excited by what was going on visually and physically in, in theatre and I found that my stage directions were getting longer and longer as I tried to describe my vision for what I wanted to see on stage um, and the dialogue was getting shorter and shorter proportionately and I, I began to feel that it was a slightly ridiculous way of trying to create work that could um, that could be bolder, uh, that could reach out to some of those things that I felt were going on excitingly in, in other stage disciplines and other um, relational disciplines, um, which is how I ended up working um, in devising it. It occurred to me, and this begins to point to a political thing, um, that I didn't get into theatre in order to sit on my own. It feels to me like it's, uh, you know, theatre is, is fundamentally a social art and all the time we're not experiencing it in a social context. Um, I kind of feel like we're having to imagine ourselves uh, into uh, a, 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 a space, a relationship that actually we can also uh, just in, in invite ourselves into. We can make that um, happen for real and be part of it. And I'm very interested in what happens when, when writers uh, throw themselves into that sort of mix in a way that I think you've just said, uh, uh, you know, is happening um, in increasingly. Um, so I found myself uh, part of a community of makers who were making in unorthodox ways. And I think probably a lot of them would have been exactly the suspects that we might have uh, thought of in, in uh, trying to describe the population of that tendency within uh, British theatre to feel anti-writer. I can think of people who would say that they felt um, in a way that their expectations of theatre were contrary to that, that single author uh, uh, model that, that, that we've been describing. The interesting thing is they would of course then immediately start to talk about the exceptions to that rule. They will say I don't really like playwrights except for Carol Churchill and Edward Bond and Martin Crimp and Sarah Kane and Tim Crouch and Philip Ridley and, and on that list goes and I think the um, what I feel is that the the uh, the uh, 
the bigger, the more, the more multifarious process-driven uh, work that, uh, that I've been involved in has come from a, an utter frustration with what we felt, um, particularly at that time, I think, at the end of the 90s going into the new millennium, um, was a period in which writing was not bold. Uh, playwrights were not making work that felt like it was bold or ambitious uh, in its reach, in its aspirations. It was a time when it felt like um, uh, playwrights had too often become um, interested in the parochial, um, in the rather small, in chamber pieces. That's partly a, a, a funding issue, we know that. Um, I rather think I'd agree with, with uh, something that I imagine Michael would, would concur with, that uh, what was missing at that time and maybe is still missing is the big, bold state of the nation uh, play. And again, there's, a, there's all sorts of questions about um, how we support that kind of writing with that sort of reach and those sorts of aspirations. Um, but what I would say is that I've, I've never been in a process, and I don't know anyone whose work I value, um, who's ever been in a process where there hasn't been a writer present or several writers present. Um, the writer is not being banished from processes or from rehearsal rooms. I think we're thinking differently about what the job of writing is. I think uh, if there is a distinction, it's about um, a lineage that views writing for theatre as, um, as a literary art and a literary act. So if I was being very crude about that, I would say that's about people writing books that they can then give to directors to adapt into stage plays. Uh, I won't name names, but I expect you can think of some. Um, uh, and that there is, all, there is something really different that is about writing for theatre. Writing for theatre means writing in four dimensions. It means in, intervening um, in, a, in a process that's full of movement and full of gaps uh, and, uh, and full of um, uh, interesting and fructile uh, tensions. Um, and for that reason, I feel like it's a very different art than writing for any other medium, including film or television. I'm always suspicious when playwrights are able to move seamlessly into film or television. I feel like theatre has more in common with, uh, with dance or with cooking or with gardening than it has to do with uh, film or, or television. And that's because, uh, actually, I think I do start with form, and I think a lot of the people that I find interesting start with form. Um, uh, and certainly we start with trying to fit the process to the instance of the work. So the thing that we're trying to get made uh, will determine uh, how we build the process around it. Um, and that degree of thoughtfulness uh, and of not trying to establish an orthodoxy around any of this, I think, is really, really important. Um, <clears throat> so if, so here's, my, here's my provocation. I think um, there's something anti-writer about that playwriterly uh, notion um, uh, that... Uh, that writers are somehow being banished or are being sidelined because writers are present in all of these processes um, and I think they're being erased uh, too often in the perceptions of uh, people whose, uh, whose investment is in that, um, that, that playwriting line. It's so funny, by the way. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an often made point, but it's worth restating. How unfortunate it is that every time we say the word playwright, we hear the idea of writing in it, because of course that's not what playwriting is. Plays are wrought, uh, they're not written, and that's why I quite liked the idea. <laughs> I'm glad you came. Um, uh, and that's, uh, 
So that's why it was very interesting when, when David suggested that he might describe me as a playmaker, although that's not a word I ever use about myself. I think that's a beautiful way to describe what I do, because I think I'm part of a making process in which writing is one of um, many threads, and we're, we're, we're all in a, a conversation together that I find very, um, uh, very exciting. I think the point is well made, that that excitement doesn't always translate. What do we say about that? Um, it was really interesting to me that in Michael's uh, review of Islands, um, he quoted uh, Caroline's words in the, in the programme note, um, that the piece had been developed, th th scare quotes, through a devising process, mm -hmm. which is not something you would have done had you seen a bad play. You wouldn't have described that piece as a play by the scare quotes around it. Something that interests me is that bad devising uh, always gets pointed up as an example of why devising doesn't work. Bad playwriting is always about a failure on the part of the playwright or a failure on the part of the production. Bad devising is always used uh, as a, as a, a, a whip uh, for, the, uh, for the methodology in itself or for the ideology uh, behind it. Devising plainly doesn't work. Well, it does work. I've seen it work. I'm only in theatre because when I was 19 years old, I saw uh, The Street of Crocodiles uh, complicite show at the National. It utterly changed what I thought theatre can do. Um, devising is incredibly powerful, but it's also incredibly hard. Uh, and that's what we don't talk about enough. Uh, it's much, much harder to get a good result out of uh, a devising process. I think a devising uh, process is much likelier to just fail. Um, and that's why I'm attracted to it. Uh, and it's why I think all of the people who I know who work, who are committed to that methodology, um, that's partly why they are, they're interested in it. The other reason is that I think there is something for us about um, wishing in the work we make, in the process that we make, because we have political commitments that bring us to theatre uh, as a way of changing the world, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, uh, we do want to live inside uh, processes that reflect our aspirations for the world. So we're thinking incredibly hard about what processes might be uh, that can enable us as makers uh, to go to work and to be together in a way that reflect our aspirations for the society that we're trying to describe in our work. And it feels like um, trying to get there through um, a very cleanly hierarchical top-down process um, at the very least places a, a, a tension at the heart of the work that for me is intolerable. What I do think uh, is that we as devisers and as makers in unorthodox ways are very bad at explaining to audiences or helping audiences to understand the ways in which the, the, measure, the methodologies to which we're committed are important to us. We don't let them into our rehearsal room enough. We don't talk to them enough about why we've chosen to work in this apparently counterintuitive way. Um, we don't say, uh, sometimes in a way that I think we honestly could. This isn't going to be the best play you've ever seen, but I want it to be important to you because of how we made it and because of what your experience is of sitting with us uh, while we share it with you. So I think we can do a lot more in how we articulate process, in how we open it out. Um, that feels hugely important. I'm just saying one other thing very quickly. I'm aware I'm sort of rambling on a little bit here. Um, by the way, I'm not going to address the whole moral superiority thing, but I think it's a really interesting question. So I'll let you decide whether you want to ask me that question or not. Um, 
Uh, it feels like it's an adjunct to everything I've just said, but maybe we shouldn't actually go there. Might get beaten up on the way to the train. Um, I just want to say, I, I, I didn't want to leave this by, by suggesting that there's a, a paranoia um, in, um, uh, in what's uh, going on in playwrights' heads right now. Those, are the, those, those playwrights who feel that, um, that things are shifting. I certainly think the cultural ground is shifting. The centre of gravity is shifting. It has shifted very much in the last few years. Uh, if you think about the, um, the major uh, successful shows coming out of, for example, the National Theatre in the last few years, if you think of Warhorse, you think of Curious Incident, those pieces are being made by people who have utter respect for text but are also um, coming out of a background that may include devising. Um, but I also think those models are reaching back to, um, I think there's a whole generation of makers coming of age now who are, um, who are not just wedded to devising in a... In a um, in, a, in a way that has to do with a, a sort of unworking orthodoxy. They're also people who have been inspired by reading John McGrath um, or by Joan, Joan Littlewood. Very often we're, we're people who haven't seen that work, but we tell each other stories about it. Um, or, it or it becomes a sort of um, something a a aspirational in the, in the air around us. Or we're thinking about the, the, you know, the Bill Bryden, um, the Cottesloe Company. Or we're thinking about the early days of the, or the high days, I suppose, of the, of, of the Everyman Theatre. Or we're thinking about Ken Campbell. All of these people are, are very present in the room uh, for us, along with the idea of, of devising. Um, and again, I think there's, there's writerliness there. But sorry, just to finish off. Um, uh, I don't think that feeling of, of um, beleaguerment, I think he said, comes from nowhere. Um, I think there are two things. There's, a, there's, a, um, there's an over-privileging in our culture of innovation, which shows up, for example, in how you have to talk to the Arts Council. Um, it shows up in how uh, The Guardian <laughs> talks about theatre. So it's very difficult to get a straight play funded now by the Arts Council. It's very, very difficult to get a second production of a play uh, funded by the Arts Council because you're having to indicate something about the development of the form is the phrase that they use. It's much easier for site-specific work, for example, that might be the most incredibly hackneyed and boring site-specific work you can imagine, to make that case uh, to, uh, to the Arts Council or to other uh, subsidising bodies. Um, it's very much easier to get your show written about in The Guardian, in broadsheet, maybe even on the blogs, um, if there's an element of novelty that you can come in with. And I, I sort of deplore both of those things. I wish that wasn't so. Um, and I also think there's a bias within um, university drama courses now uh, and theatre courses. That's certainly the, the, the sense I have from the teaching that I do. That devising, first of all, is being hardened into an orthodoxy that's taught on, which is completely inimical to it. Um, but also, actually, it's easier to engage um, a whole room full of students um, by asking them to participate in the devising process um, rather than asking them to consider themselves as individual uh, makers within a process and to decide what route it is that they specifically want to take as artists in relation to theatre as a, a, a social form. I think that's some of the things I wrote down. I'm going to stop. Thank you very much. Um, Rachel, I, I, th I think we would agree that... Um, uh, that devising or, or non-traditional, non-orthodox, non-conventional, I wish we could find a slightly less negative way of, of putting the process uh, that didn't involve words quite like that, 
um, but that uh, it's a period when, uh, when those processes clearly are very exciting and very prominent and talked about and viewed as being the future. Uh, you've come into playwriting relatively recently. You write, it seems to me, brilliantly and in a classical, in, 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 in a classical representational way uh, with, with linear stories which brilliantly bring disparate elements together uh, to come at, at the point of a climax when all the forces are in play and, 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 and um, uh, 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 the, the play comes to its climax. W was that a choice? Was that something that you decided to do or was that just how, um, how, how things fell out? Um, I think when you called me to ask me to come here, the first thing I said was I was like, I consider myself to be a collaborative worker, but after listening to everyone, I guess the point is that I am soul, I am, I lock myself in a room, I come out with a script, <laughs> and then I take it to a rehearsal room. But, I, but um, my reason for doing that was because I didn't plan to be a playwright, I trained as an actress, and I kind of fell into playwriting by chance, and I, and I didn't know anything about it, so there was no uni course, there was no anything, there was just kind of A-level English lit, which kind of involved a bit of Ibsen, a bit of Chekhov, a bit of Shakespeare, and a bit of a, there will be a script, and if you want, you can take it down to the drama studio and play with it. So I just thought, until there's something on paper, that's what I understood playwriting to be. So when I wrote something, that, that was my intention. But as an actor who has worked on new plays, I know that the, the ownership that actors can have over script as well. So I know that there's room for conversations and negotiations with a playwright if you're respectful and kind of nice enough to them. And, and I've, all, I've been lucky to have done three plays where, the, where I kind of said quite firmly from the beginning that I won't leave the rehearsal room. Um, and it wasn't for ego or to make sure that the actors said my words right, it was for the opposite. But also it was to take away that idea that I was the most important person in the room. I kind of, I didn't like the idea that lots of actors and friends of mine would always be like, oh God, you need the actor to, uh, you need the writer to go so you can fuck it up and then like change it and then find out how to make it work and not highlight their flaws. And I'm like, tell me the flaws, I don't mind hearing that. Um, or, yeah, I think that's, so I kind of very luckily had three directors that let me do that. And I remember one, on my first play, an actor kind of, after about two weeks, quite strongly was like, this isn't working, the script's crap, like that scene just doesn't work. In a really jokey way, because we'd all become kind of friends and quite, it felt really safe. And she felt she could say that to me. And my eyes just filled with tears. And I was like, I'm not gonna cry, I'm not gonna cry. And the director kind of turned to me and smiled and was like, this is why you should leave the room. <laughs> like, you wouldn't hear this conversation. And I thought, actually, no, you're right. I chose to be here, I chose to, um, be a part of that and make it work and sit with her and do the edits and help her get on that. But also I know from an acting point of view, no matter how flawed and kind of holy a script is, they make it work. Like nine times out of 10, they will make those and make it work for you. And then actually what you have, I hope, is a brilliant safe skeleton of something that you can kind of play around with and know that everyone, I like to think that I'm providing something 
that people can kind of whirl around and does that make sense and feel safe playing away from without a complete abandonment my one when I did Roots I went into the rehearsal day one with a kind of completed script in the sense of scene five was missing and I, and I just didn't know what scene five was other than I knew the actor that was going to be in that scene and the director like we'd had several conversations about it and he was like, what's going on there? I was like, oh, I just feel like the rhythm is like, da 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 <laughs> He was like, what? I was like, it needs to go scene, scene, scene there. And he was like, what's there? I was like, it's just her. I don't know why. We, do, we just need to see her. And he was like, and, and he left me some time. And he was really brilliant, as, again, all the directors I've worked with have been. They never offer solutions. They never offer notes. They never, they just go, okay, keep going, which is all I think I need, luckily. And so we went, but, I, but unfortunately I didn't get there in time. So we went into the first day of rehearsal and did a kind of cast read. And I knew that that was going to be her scene. I didn't really know what. And she was luckily brilliant. And she went, I trust you. Like, go and, you know, sort it out in your own time. And then I fucked up because I offered her two scenes. And I, sh and I learned, I was like, I'll never do that again. I will make my choice. And because then she was like, well, you know, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that, but maybe we <laughs> suddenly became like a amalgamation of the two scenes. And I was like, oh God, Lord, never do this again. Because actually I think she wanted a, an opinion and then she would have made that work. My, have I answered anything? I don't know. I think you have. I mean, you, one thing you've certainly said is that is that there's a negotiation over process. Yeah. But it's not a fixed, but despite the fact that it's a, a very conventional model yeah. externally, that an awful lot has been has has been going on, which was unexpected and, and different because of the people in the room. And I like I feel really honoured that I've been able to tell stories that I think are important to me. And there's always, if you're kind of a new writer, a playwright there's always a fear that no one will appreciate your stories and you've got to obviously you get a bit of confidence when a venue says they're going to put it on that someone's interested but you know until kind of opening night with an audience you never really know and and so you're constantly you feel like you've written something that you want to watch or that's how I write theatre that I want to watch you kind of offer it out for a rehearsal and a kind of workshop and a process to get it to a finished production and I kind of think if, if, if I allowed too much involvement, I'd be worried that very clever directors and lighting designers and set people would tell the story they wanted to watch. I'd be very, and I've been lucky, I've never had that. I've always had, even with like a missing scene five, everyone's been very honouring of my script without making me the most important person in the room. And, and do you mean by that that it's the purpose of the rehearsal is to realise your intention? Yeah, I get. Yeah, but make make it better, make it brilliant. Like I was so lucky with the Westbridge, I had like Alts do the set design, and he kind of did the twizzly chairs, and he knew that that was the only way that thing could work. I couldn't have come up with that. The director knew how to open it. I didn't have any of those ideas. That's not. I didn't think <coughs> of that being my job. But what, what they did do was allow me to constantly sit in the background and just always make sure that this was the story that I wanted to tell, which I really, I really enjoyed and appreciated that. The, the, the very phrase, thank you very much. The, the, the very phrase, the story I wanted to tell, kind of brings me to, to, to Liz and to um, uh, what's, what 
has been happening in the academy, or maybe is exaggerated, or maybe is not exaggerated at all, which is the emergence of, 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 of an orthodoxy which, which Chris spoke about over the last 15, 20 years, possibly now on the way. Uh, which set, put really crudely and simply, but I think it's quite important because we haven't really talked about form at all, specifically, uh, that pitted representational theatre, theatre that said we are going to show you something that's like something outside in the world, and uh, presentational theatre, which is about you know, the moment of the, the theatrical moment, and, um, uh, uh, and therefore re referring very much to to, to its own language or the language of the art forms that are assembled um, to make it. Um, and behind that is the idea that, that realism uh, is, is false because it's pretending that what you see in front of you is true, but in fact that isn't true. Um, and even that when Brecht said you know, the, the purpose of playwriting is to... Uh, the purpose of playmaking is to you know, strip aside the, the mythologies of capitalism and show the truth of the class struggle. Uh, even the class struggle now isn't true in, in, in that sense. You've written an extraordinary book called Acts and Apparitions, um, which I think is, is, is quite critical of, 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 of that turn. I think it's quite critical partly because, um, because it's become an orthodoxy, that a hundred flowers aren't blooming, in, in, in the academy on these questions. Um, is that fair? And would you like to talk a little bit more about what you were trying to say in it as opposed to what I think you were trying to say? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll have a go. Um, so, and th thanks for that introduction. The, the, the essential distinction, I suppose, between what we've been talking about so far, which is a kind of devising versus text-based theatre, um, in some ways isn't the broadness of the argument that I was making. So I think you were doing really well to make that, that distinction in a sense, that the, the book <coughs> is looking at something that was specifically related to a dramatic and post-dramatic binary um, that, was, that, that has emerged in the academy, that was emerging in the academy around the 1990s and into the 2000s. And I think there were elements of that, as I write in the book, and won't go into in huge detail here, but... Of, of a kind of post-structuralist philosophy that was getting um, misunderstood by a number of people as a way of um, as a way of critiquing dramatic realism on ideological grounds, essentially. And my contention with that, um, in a sense, is that I don't believe in what I would call the kind of technical fallacy that says if something has a particular kind of form, then it has a particular kind of ideology that in a sense you can, you can look at a model of theatre and another model of theatre and say this one is politically more radical than that one or this one is politically more reactionary. And, and I think already what I'm hearing tonight is kind of replications of that binary that keep coming through in the sense of, um, you know, even in terms of the sense of quality, that the idea of saying that a particular model of theatre produces better work for me is an absolute nonsense. I, I genuinely think... There is brilliant theatre made across all sorts of spectrums and absolutely god-awful theatre made across all sorts of spectrums. And I think to kind of say otherwise does have a kind of lack of transparency in terms of ideologically pushing one particular model over other particular models. And I think what my book looks at is how that binary works on both sides. So I think in a sense 
where I perhaps come at this question in a different way to you, David, is that I think your argument, and we've had these discussions in a number of mm. occasions now, which have been um, fantastic, <coughs> but I think from, from your perspective, it's very much in a way that the playwrights somehow fallen victim to this and this binary and, and, and that, that they're being disadvantaged or that there's, there's a kind of weighting towards a kind of more devised and collaborative practice. Whereas I think for me, the, the victim of the binary is actually about innovative work and the, the, the kind of victim of that binary is about models on both sides of the binary and across the binary being replicated unhelpfully um, because in a sense there's all sorts of different influences that are pushing devising practice so-called down one route and a playwright's practice or a writer's practice down another route. From, um, from, from the way that, that, that playwriting is taught, from the way that devising practice is taught, through to, um, in a sense, the way these things are reviewed. So it's, 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 you know, it's fabulous to have Michael here, and it would be really interesting to have Lynn Gardner sat on the other side of me. <laughs> um, because I think, in a sense, e e even in terms of the kind of the theatre criticism, there's a sense in which that binary you know, is there. Um, and, and these critics write about this kind of practice and these critics write about this kind of practice and there's a, there's a kind of supporting or promoting of that kind of model over the other that, that goes on in that game. And, and again, I think that's unhelpful for, for an interest in, in new work developing. Um, I think it's also fair to say, in, in, terms of, in terms of academics, who I feel a bit slightly anxious that I seem to be representing the entirety of theatre academics. <laughs> so I'm slightly nervous about that. Um, but I think it, it is fair to say that, in a way, academics are always interested in the things that aren't said. They're always interested in the histories that haven't been written. They're interested in the things that are being ignored by the mainstream, or they're interested in the things that are perhaps being wrongly described by the mainstream. And, and in a way, that's, that, in a sense, a lot, a lot of scholars, and particularly people working in the contemporary field, I think, would almost, in a kind of a sort of historiography of the present, if you like, if that was written, um, the feeling is that if it was written without academics being part of that historiography, it would be very London-centric, um, it would be very new writing-centric, it would be very playwright-centric. And so in some senses, I think there might be a balancing of that in terms of scholars in contemporary performance studies saying, well, what about all this other work that's happening? What about all this other work that's happening? Actually, often not in London. Um, often in the regions, often in smaller art centres, often in university studios, that doesn't get written about and, with, and given the same kind of dominance. So I think where you may see um, a kind of a, a sort of academic mafia, if you like, um, you know, and I think there, is, there are senses in which there are absolutely departments and universities and specific academics who do favour that practice, just as there are academics um, critics, directors who favour a playwriting practice. I don't think there's a kind of consolidation of that across the academy, but I think there may be that sense of kind of trying to counter the balance of what's still seen as quite an establishment narrative um, and, 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 and really, in a way, trying to rebalance the books in a sense of the kind of work that's, that, that, that's challenging perhaps some of those orthodoxies and, um, and some of those traditions. So I think that's, that's probably, in a sense, for me, the most important thing about my, my own relationship with, with the kind of provocation that you've set up, is I just, I, I would really like to stop finding these, these kind of distinctions between ways of making theatre in a way that brings ideology into it and in a way that brings a kind of um, 
a sort of a winner-loser into it and actually there's really not enough support for theatre around at the moment um, in all sorts of different ways to be, to be kind of finding battles to fight amongst the sector and I think the other thing that's really fascinating about it is that what, what, what I think came out of in a sense that reaction against and I think there was one, I think you're right and I write about that in the book, I think there was a reaction against certainly dramatic realism at a certain point that came from the kind of philosophies and ideas that, that people were, were engaging with at that time. But I think what's interesting is that what came out of that, that kind of moment in time, in a sense, was some of the most fantastic developments in new writing, actually, um, that, that kind of I've been aware of in my, in my sort of working lifetime. So, so coming from a place where there was this binary, where there was this opposition, where there were people making work... Um, and kind of very deliberately positioning themselves against dramatic theatre, and there were other people mm. who were positioning themselves as as supporting this, you know, that the solo writer is the absolute form of brilliance in the theatre, and this is really the way that it has to be, um, and and kind of dissing the other side of things. I think out of that binary came a really really interesting development on both sides of that. I think playwrightings become more interesting. I think new works become much more aware of the of the potential of writers, of the potential of written text, of the potential of narrative and storytelling. And so in a sense it feels like that from the mid-2000s something really, really exciting and interesting has come from that battle. And whether that battle was over-mythologised on either side, I don't know. But I think what did start to happen is you can see now in terms of new writing how those patterns that have come from companies that were devising are now feeding into those playwrights' texts because you see that work. So therefore, the individual playwright is, is empowered to go away and, and, and know that that work can be written and perhaps even write some of the work that's a similar model without having gone through the collaborative process because it's now in the ether that people can all appreciate. And I think likewise, where there was devising practice and collaborative work, that for me, certainly as someone who's always come at theatre through writing and through text felt was really lacking um, in the late 90s and early 2000s that text and, and writing was something that wasn't considered well enough in devising practice that often I would go and see work and think great ideas you know beautiful physicality lovely choreography but god you know get a writer in you know get someone to sort the text out because this could have been amazing and actually nobody's you've just chucked a few you know a kind of skeletal thing across the you know to, to make it hang together and I don't think that's happening so much now. I think there are some incredibly interesting um, writers who are working and heading up companies as well, actually, and, and, and driving that through. And I think probably just maybe the last thing that I'll say is just going back to um, a point that, um, that Michael made about, about the kind of democratic process is not necessarily leading to, to a kind of more politically efficacious result. I think that's absolutely true. I think that was, that was a very kind of early myth of devising in a way that somehow, you know, this, this, this form of democracy could produce something, again, by its nature, that was politically progressive. But I think what's interesting about the theatre maker who writes, as opposed to the playwright, is, is, is the kind of power that they have over their own modes of production. And I think that's a really significant difference in terms of, the, in terms of taking ownership of your work to a degree that's not about having to get a literary manager to say, yes, this is good enough to develop, or having to get a theatre mm -hmm. to say, yes, this is good enough to put actors behind it or a director behind it, or this is good enough to do a staged reading of. 
but actually to have the, the, the capacity and the potential, if you can get funding from the Arts Council, which a, num a number of, of, of really good people have, to take control over your own modes of production. And I think for writers that can be incredibly empowering because actually, in a sense, they're then leading that process. They're not reliant on the directors who are going to respect the work, as you were talking about. They're not reliant on other people coming in and doing that. They're leading the artistic process from the front. And I think, you know, people who support and favour writing should be really pleased that those models are, are, are kind of possibilities that can move forward. I'm thinking of people like David Leddy with Fire Exit, um, Tim Crouch for a while with News From Nowhere, um, also Melanie Wilson, who's a brilliant writer and works within a kind of artistic ensemble, and Caroline Horton, who I actually really like, I have to say. I think Islands was an interesting piece. There were possibly not one of her her best in terms of text, but I think a fascinating piece of work in terms of its influences. But, you know, like Chris said, some things work and some things don't, whichever model you're looking at. And also, you know, whichever audience you have engaged in that as well. It was a very interesting site for that piece to happen in the bush. I was surprised when I saw that it had been programmed at the bush and it felt like a slightly odd, odd kind of combination, but for what that's worth. Um, I think that's probably right. enough. Uh, there's, some, there's some very, I think some quite interesting distinctions coming out. And, and, and I'd, I'd slightly disagree with you, but, but about one half of a distinction. Because uh, I think um, I don't think it's true that, that, that deconstructive work has kind of followed um, uh, non-traditionally processed work. I mean, I, you know, I think Sarah Kane and indeed late Ch Carol Churchill, whenever late Carol Churchill takes over from middle Carol Churchill, uh, and and uh, and Martin Crimp and so on were, were headed in that direction. Oh, absolutely. And I would yeah. imagine, in, well, certainly in Sarah's case, yeah. independently yeah. Of, of, of that other work. I think what what, what has changed probably is um, is is the cross art form element of of the of of, of, of the new deal, which which also um, Chris talked about a lot. I mean, I think that is something that that writers have found uh, a challenge uh, and. Um, a, a, a good challenge. I mean, we have, as a theatre culture, because of the period uh, with the domination of the Royal Court in the late 50s, which really was, you know, we will take your play and we will put it on. Uh, and, and, and that's the, the whole purpose of the endeavour is to, is to do that. And, the, and that led, among other things, to a very often very beautiful but very simple naturalistic design model. Uh, and I think we were... As a theatre, you could say that, 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 that new writing, um, not necessarily its fault, uh, was visually less interesting than, 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 than the way new writing was done on the continent, and possibly then playwrights became more resistant to, to design solutions that were more unexpected as a, <coughs> a, 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 as a consequence of that. But I think, I think that is something that's been, you, you know, you can genuinely say that that's been a development uh, in the way, I mean, if you look at Work of somebody like Rupert Gould, um, you know, somebody who is working in, in, in a on a play like Enron. I mean, you could you could imagine the seventies production of Enron would have been much less interesting than, than Rupert's production in in, 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 in the in the noughts, um, because the writer might well have sat there and said, no, no, I was very specific. This is a room under the uh, you know under the bank, and it's very important we see the vault, you know, and and, and that wasn't what. Uh, what, what, what Rupert is, is, is about in terms of, of, of what he does. But the, the other distinction that I thought was really interesting is about skill. 
because Chris made, I, I th and I'm going to quote you in order that you can correct me if I've got it wrong, you were saying that for you the devising process, and I know you're not happy with the term but using it as a shorthand, mm -hmm. that the devising process is not about a kind of melding of everybody into, into, into one process in which they kind of leave their individual skills, talents and histories at the door, but a way of melding, melding existing skills together. Obviously one hopes as one always does developing them. Now it seems to me that, that and what Rachel described, and if I describe the rehearsal process uh, I, I, I've been through, I would describe actually as very, very similar processes. I mean the big exception of course is there is a script. Uh, you know, there is something that you start with before everybody else enters the room. Uh, and indeed, there's differences to that process too, because in the conventional theatre, shows tend to be designed before rehearsal starts. So various conversations have taken place. Uh, there's various points where people join the train. Um, but that actually what, what happens in those processes um, is, is, is a, a, a kind of pooling of existing skills rather than entering into a... Um, uh, sort of nirvana state of, of, of everybody in inventing what they are for the purpose of that individual project. I mean, would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, something, that, I mean, something that's very interesting for me in, in, in what you've just said, I think, I'm not an academic, but I have a sense that there's, a, there's an academic use of the word text to describe anything that's treated as a text. Would that be about right? I'm thinking about so I'm thinking about moments where I've uh, where I've not started a process with a with a script, but I've started a process with an object or a painting or a, um, an idea about some movement, uh, and that sits in the place of text. Uh, and so, what I'm really interested to, I suppose, um, the question that for me that comes out of that is the what the virtue might be of the written script as that, that campfire that everybody sits around to begin with, the thing that we can all train our attention to and, and have a, um, um, a, a, the beginnings of a response to that then feeds into a, a, a process that hopefully gathers some momentum on its own. Um, why a, why a, um, a literary artefact like a, a typescript um, uh, is necessarily uh, m more productive, more fertile than something else that might sit in the place of that text. What I've never done is gone into a process where there's nothing there except the six or eight or ten of us staring at each yeah. other across an abyss. But have you done a process now? where you've written something first? Oh, you, yes. You have yeah. plays that are published? And, oh, yes. And, and, yeah. Yeah. Can, I, can I come back at, of course. at the word you've used it several times, like literary? Mm. Okay. And this implication, <laughs> sorry, that, <laughs> that you know, th this thing called the written text is a literary artefact. Mm as opposed to all the other methods we've been talking about. But, I mean, I'm not a playwright, but I would have thought, and, you know, two playwrights would correct me if I'm wrong, that a, a, a text is only a blueprint for action, isn't it? And all the great playwrights, I mean, the great playwrights we would think of as part of, quote, the literary tradition, seem to me to open the door to collaboration from the moment they start writing. I mean, Chekhov is the supreme mm, example, of course, isn't he, actually? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Chekhov writes plays that are now part of an accepted literary tradition, but they're also blueprints for physical direction. I mean, he, he, he specifies quite clearly, doesn't he, you know, mm. sound effects. Yeah, he orchestrates the play mm. as he writes it. Mm. Um, as I was saying that, Martin Crimp, I remember once saying on a panel, he says, when you write a script, a play script, you are in fact directing it. Mm. 
And then what happens is the director comes along and the director, quote, rewrites the script. <laughs> and I think that was a very succinct definition of the, of the you know, theatre-making process. What I'm trying to say is, I mean, I think to lump the whole tradition of playwriting down the ages as literary seems to be artificial because all, those, all the really great playwrights allow room, I would have thought, for negotiation, for collaboration. And even the act of sitting in a room creating a play, as you both do, is only the start of the process, isn't it? It's, a, it's the starting of the collaborative process. So I, I'm worried about the distinctions we're making, you know, the artificial distinctions, to go back to what you were saying, between these two methods of creating theatre. Yes. I, I, Rachel, what, I mean, do you feel that... I mean, you, you, you write in a contemporary way. Your stage directions are very limited. You don't often specify where scenes are set. Uh, in great detail. I mean, is, is that a deliberate leaving of space for other people to...? Yeah, yeah. I don't... I, I, like I said, it's not my job. I, I yeah. think I could write detail. I think with the Westbridge, I had more detailed stage directions to help me get to the end of scenes. So it would be, you know, Andre's house, Mum mm. sit at the table, Andre creeps in, like gets switched on, action so to speak and then by the end of it it might just say andre's house <laughs> and it's what the director d or like like goes on start um a lot of scenes didn't have anything i just would rather i i think story is in the dialogue it's there it exists on the page mm. anything else is an add-on that directors and set designers and actors are going to be doing to it and and if i'm in the room there to touch base with they can have that, and I always like to filter my voice through the director's voice anyway, so that so there's clear roles and clear. But but I sit there and I I will I'll admit I sit in a rehearsal. I'll be like I wouldn't do that if I was directing it, but I'm not directing it. Yeah. And I sit there and I honour what they're doing, and I I think I stay. I like the idea that I'm not special. I don't think I'm the most special person in the room. Well, I think I think you said you made a very good point, yeah. which I think is absolutely true, and I made it earlier this week. Um, on a couple of occasions, I think, that, that, that actually having the playwright in the room is, is not necessarily great for the playwright's authority. Um, actually, yeah. it's, 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 it's usually the reverse. You are demystified extremely quickly. And, and the sort of author gods, to use the, the Bartism, um, is, 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 is much more able to be godly. I think Derrida has a quote about the absent author you know, looking down the process. Well, if you're in rehearsals, which yeah. British playwrights have the right to be, then then that's that's not going to happen. And I spoke Can to a lot of I spoke to a lot of playwrights at the court to ask what the standard was, and they all said to be there for the first week, to go away for two weeks, and allow everyone to fuck it up, and then to come yeah. back. And but then that then there's a presentation, and then there's a <gasps> the writers here, and I just think mm. take that away, and if you're mm. there, then actually you can fuck it up from the beginning, and you can <laughs> kind of remake the mold and have fun and be be safe together and yeah. have open conversations about everything. I would say. I think the. Um uh, the uh, that list of exceptions that I that I improvised of, um, yes. of playwrights who I you I think people who are not playwrights um, nonetheless uh, love and revere um, uh, I think they all do exactly what you're describing Michael which is to I think it, they're seeing the the craft of the playwright about being creating a text which requires completion in some way that, that builds into its own processes 
Uh, but doesn't uh, every text require completion? I mean, it, well, there's so, no such thing as a complete text, is there? Well, uh, so Theatically? well, uh, let me come at it this way. My first experience of this conversation about um, playwrights versus um, writers for theatre, if we can, if we can just hold that for a <laughs> for a moment, if we can bear that for a moment, um, started in a, a, a bunch of quite scrappy conversations that I used to have back in the days when David Eldridge and I both kept blogs. Mm -hmm. And the terms that, that David used were about it, what he was opposing against the kind of writing that I was arguing for was uh, what he called fine writing. And I think that's a very interesting uh, phrase and I think it has something to do with um, a quality of literary um, uh, value or achievement mm -hmm. that he sees in certain kinds of uh, writing that for me have to do with um, literary models outside of theatre, whereas for me, I think I... What, uh, my, Such my, as? So, what, what examples would he give of fine writing? Uh, or you? What examples would you give? That's, that's really interesting. <laughs> Who are these I, fine I, writers? I, well, exactly. I mean, I think... I, I th well, let me, say that, let me say what I think David is, is, okay. is trying to squish, which is the thing that I bring, which is... Um, I want writing to be adequate to its situation, and that's my only um, aspiration for it, in mm -hmm. a sense. And I think um, the task of writing adequately for theatre... So, so here's a thing. Um, Shunt, right, who are not really um, making work in this way anymore, I think, quite this way, um, but when they started out, was a collective, as you know, of ten mm -hmm. uh, makers, um, all of whom would contribute writing um, to their work. And sometimes that writing was really strong, and sometimes it was utterly lame, uh, and it reflected the fact that they had different uh, degrees of skill and interest in uh, different kinds of, of um, uh, textual production. Um, for me, there's something very interesting about the way that a collective like Shunt writes together um, as a, um, a meeting of different voices, a meeting of different kinds of skill, a meeting of different interests and aesthetics. Um, that, for David, I assume, is chaotically not fine. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect there's something about the, the finesse that's possible with a single developed voice. Uh, my guess is that maybe that's what he's thinking about. My feeling is that that's... For me, that's more of a novelistic or a, or a, a poet, a poetry, a poetry-ish... Um, that's not a very good word. Um, I think that's a model that belongs to poetry or to the novel, for me, rather do, than to Do you think so? I'm not clear. What, what, what belongs to novel or poetry? The, the, idea, the, the idea of... Uh, of I, think it, so I think it occupies a, quite a narrow niche, which is why I think we get into this uh, squabble, because I think it's, it's, a, it's a kind of writing that, um, that is um, uh, wrought enough to draw attention to its own operations within itself, but not to be so opaque that your sense of the language uh, as being a, um, a, a, as having material qualities of its own uh, dominates in the reception. Could I just argue briefly, I mean, as a critic, I find one of the pleasures of theatre we don't talk about very much is the aesthetic pleasure of language. And with the excitements of theatre, old theatre, new theatre, you know, from Shakespeare to Stoppard, whoever gets a name, is the thrill of words in the theatre. That's one thing. Just another quick point. In, in demystifying the writer, or if that's what we're doing, dethroning, demystifying, whatever we're doing, what we're actually doing, it seems to me, is handing, transferring power to the director. That's what it's actually about. When we talk about collaborative theatre, 
More often than not, it seems to me, the collaborative ventures I've come across are very much director driven, even the very best of them. And even the ones you invoked, actually, the Theatre Workshop depended on the driving, <coughs> often dictatorial genius of Joan Littlewood. Um, 784, I mean, mm. I, like you, you know, John McGraw was a friend and a, you mm. know, an inspiration, but John was very, very much a dominant director writer, wasn't he? Mm. He was Absolutely. 784. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, even Complicity, which again, we all agree about admiring. <laughs> The show you mentioned, Street of Crocodiles. Yes, I mean that's but that's Simon McBurney, yeah, isn't it, with a driving yeah, yeah, yeah. authorial vision, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even these but collaborative the, ventures seem to me to have the writer equivalent within. Yes, them. I don't think I'm arguing against that. Right. Okay. No, I think it's I think it's very much about whether. Which, which means you can't really have anti-democratic. I mean, you you, you really if if you're saying it's it, it, that this work is produced partly by changing the hierarchy, which may be a good thing to do from time to time. But I mean, it, it, and I think there's a, been a rather interesting rise in the power of producers mm. and, and sort mm -hmm. of a reinvention of the notion of producers yeah. uh, in the sort of post-Binky Beaumont age. You know, <laughs> completely different, completely different. I'm not post-Binky. <laughs> oh, no way. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, I think it is true that power tends to to shift elsewhere. I mean, the obvious example is the now much praised and much vaunted German model of theatre making, which is, of course, director, auteur, mm. led. So, I mm. mean, that, that, that would be an example of something where I think, I think something that, that, as you know, is, 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 is levelled against the traditional playwriting process that it's somehow anti-democratic. That doesn't seem to stand up. But Julie is a good example because they've replaced one form of hotel with another, haven't they? I think so, yeah. But I think, I think maybe, maybe the question is not so much about, or certainly I wouldn't argue that there was a kind of a more democratic way of doing it than the playwright, that the playwright was this sole kind of method of autocracy. But I think what is interesting is that the question isn't often asked. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that, that's the real key to it for me, is that, that it's, it's about where that power is transparent or that authorship is transparent, yeah. that you can start to question it. And I would equally say with a director's theatre or with an actor's theatre, there's a number of, of kind of, um, of really interesting actor writers now as well performing their own work. A, a number of live art, um, live artists who write and perform their own work as solo artists. I think if you recognise that the author function is always there somewhere, then you can start to ask questions about what's happening with that author function and actually what that author function's doing and where the power does lie and if that's being you know, used constructively or productively or not. But I think the question that, was, that was, came in through the kind of, if you like, the post-structuralist questioning of the playwright or the dramatic playwright was sometimes about whether that authorship was, was actually being acknowledged in a sense. I think that, that would be my sense of it, was that no, absolutely, the, the author function doesn't go with the loss of the writer. No. You know the gap is there and is filled by something else. Yeah. But but to actually then start to look at every work of art in its own right, every piece of theatre in its own right, and ask those questions becomes really important. But can I just ask you? Isn't 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 the author-driven model more transparent actually? You know because there is a name, there is a, a minute, something there above the title. The collaborative model is much more. That is the one that's opaque, surely. Sometimes. Because sometimes we don't it know. Is. Sometimes and it is. Yeah. That's a question. I mean, have you ever mm. worked? you work in, in these methods. Is there any collaboration, collaborative group you know that is not driven by a strong single personality? Yes. Yes? Yeah, yeah, I think a number of them. I think normally within particular productions, you would tend to get an artistic lead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms, of, in, in terms of looking at companies across a period of time, 
there are. You companies. think there are genuine collectives? Yeah, I yeah. do. Yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's yeah. usually there's usually di- there's usually director figures in terms of somebody who is conducting the whole, mm-hmm. and I think that was one of the mistakes of collaborative. Oh, I I think it might have been a mistake, kind of mistaken mythology, of earlier devising work, where there was where, where there was that sense very kind of political. Um, kind of empowerment of saying, you know, we're all working together as a collaborative democracy and we're yes. all going to make decisions together and everything's going to be, you know, it, it didn't really work, I don't think, um, because I'm, I'm not sure that you can create something as complex as a piece of theatre without having one or perhaps a maximum of two people it's shaping it. I think there's another nub of it, there is always an author figure, that's what I'm trying to Well, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that, again, there's a distinction that might be made between power. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think this debate, and David Eldridge would be an example of it, seems some, some so baffling is this sudden idea that playwrights are these hugely authorit- authoritarian pe- people on the, on the top of a hierarchy, whereas I have to tell you, it doesn't feel like mm-hmm. that. And it doesn't feel like that for the reasons you come up with, that, that, that you know, we are in the thrall of literary managers and, 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 pe- and, and producers and directors of people um, who, who, who pay the bills. But... The other thing is is skill. I mean, the other thing is the, the, the skills we bring to the process, which is obviously different from power, though it may a particular skill may gain a particular uh, uh, may, may be a more powerful skill at a, 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 at any particular moment. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm not like you. I like being alone in a room, and I. Um, and, and arguably, it's the only thing I wanted to be in theatre. I was born in a theatre family, and I discovered through agonising process of elimination that the only thing <laughs> I seemed to be able to do um, was um, a production of Oscar Wilde's Salome at university, which, which lives on in terror in my mind. Um, so that knocked that one out. But um, uh, and, 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 and w- without saying that you know the single skilled person has any particular credibility it is of course said you know the best way to find a great English playwright is to look for a failed Irish actor (laughs) Uh, so many playwrights were one or other of those Um, but Rachel you're an you're an actor and you've trained as an actor and I'm sure you're a good one (laughs) do you I mean have you chosen and perhaps you haven't taken that decision have you chosen not to act do you think that actually having been an actor has been good for your writing I, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I am technically represented as an actor, so I feel I have to still call myself that, even though I cancel pretty much all auditions. Um, I, I love how well I understand how actors are going to read my script and what they're going to, how they're going to hold on to it. I did a radio play not long ago where the young actress that we brought in, who was just brilliant, and I asked for her, and I'd seen her work in kind of other capacities, <laughs> how when I handed her the thing, she kind of did a little crinkle of her nose and was like, shook her head, and then just said whatever she wanted. And I was like, this is why I've written this for you, and this is why I've chosen you, for you to do that, and for us to give you the space to do that. Um, so therefore, I think that means that I can confidently take away like stage directions, and um, even things like laughs, like, I, I just know that all my friends and peers will be like, oh, I'm not going to laugh there, <laughs> and then move on. And I, I just think, I just trust the brilliance that they do. And the, you were talking earlier about um, the expectation of research. I, all my friends and peers will go into the first day of rehearsal knowing that script 
as well, if not better, than the writer. And, and they're all willing to start off on the same point. And they will have done their work. They would have read that kind of, you know, document a zillion times and be ready to kind of move forward with it. But then I'm talking about very specific actors of a certain age. I, I don't know many actors in their kind of 50s plus or whatever. So I'm talking about kind of young graduates now. Um, and that's, that's the expectation. And I, actually now, that's what I look for in my new teams of kind of ensembles. I mean, I think, I think one thing I would say, and I want to open it out, but we were talking last night with Howard Branton about the so-called joint stock method, which is basically collectivizes research, which is what put it in my mind, uh, but also, to a certain extent, development. So you do do improvisations, you do do the actors you know, explore the themes of the play, things come out of it that may not end up in the play, but, 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 are, but, but may inspire things that end up in the play, uh, and may lead the writer, as I think Brian Lavery put it, to start seeing patterns which might end up being a whole thing. Um, in, in that process and then the writer goes away for quite a sh short period of time and writes it and uh, brings it back in, in, in when it works at its best to the same company of actors or a predominantly same company of actors uh, and a more conventional rehearsal process happens but of course informed by that by, uh, by, by, by what happened at the beginning of the process and that seems to me uh, uh, I've worked in that method a number of times and that seems to me a very elegant way of, uh, in a very effective way, of getting the benefits of a skilled writer in the middle of the process, but also drawing on everybody else's skills uh, to create a, a, a more collaborative, uh, collaborative mode. But I, I'm not going to throw that back for a moment, because it's, it's, we've been talking ourselves far too long. 